Good morning, church. If you would please open to Revelation chapter 7. Again, this should be the easiest passages to find in the Bible. I don't know if you get all confused when it's something in the middle. I don't understand. Those minor prophets, they're hard to come by. They're hard to figure out. But uh, we, have, we have a great chapter to go through this morning. What I would ask uh, first, I asked this question on Thursday night at community group, and we had some varying responses. But as you have been hearing these messages and going through this study in Revelation, has this been a comfort to you? Because John got this. Jesus gives it to the angel, gives it to John, gives it to the church. In the first century, we were reading it uh, because they, they were facing the persecution that John was talking about in the different cities. And now it's for all Christians in every age to be comforted. Is this a comfort? Because we're seeing some bold actions by God, some, some reality in the world that we know he has sovereignty and superintends everything over. And so this should come with why. Even we talk, talked about that Thursday night in terms of this is kind of a, it's a mixed bag a little bit. Like we're, we are comforted because we see Jesus, but this is some harsh realities that we're looking at that are being described. This chapter today is the comfort of all comforts for believers. This is one of the things we should be paying attention to because we want to see the vision of the lamb who is the lion, who is executing judgments over rebellious men and women, but able to see that even in his judgment, that's still a mercy because he's letting people know that he's there before an ultimate, before, before the, the clock is stopped and pencils down. This chapter in chapter 7 uh, is actually the answer to the last few words of chapter 6 in verse 17. Look right, right above chapter 7. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the wrath of the Lamb. They're asking, who can stand against this wrath? It's as if God is saying, oh, let me tell you who can stand. Because there are some who can stand. It's as if all heaven has stopped to answer that question. There is an interruption in the cosmic judgment that is being revealed with seal number six. And this judgment is, is those who stand are those who escape the judgment by trusting in the lamb. They escape the wrath of the lamb by trusting in the lamb. It's with this answer in mind of who can stand that we, we see chapter 7, it's actually a, it's a parenthesis because we, we pick back up in the seventh seal in chapter 8. It's, it's a parenthesis to say, I'll tell you who can stand. And in this chapter, we have two images of salvation. John first hears something, that's the first section. In the second section, he sees something. I think he hears about salvation and then sees the evidence of that salvation. Let's listen to the reading of God's word. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, 
that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes from from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, Lord, thank you for such great and rich promises that have their yes and their amen in you. Holy Spirit, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I think we we see there are three categories of the Lamb's interaction with his redeemed. And this is comfort to us. The believer is comforted by the activity of the Lamb's protection, the Lamb's purification, and the Lamb's provision. And we see the breakdown. The protection, I think, is described in the first eight verses. First thing we encounter with this vision is that he sees, John sees four angels standing there. There's an angelic protection that's happening. They're at the four corners of the earth, and they're holding things back. There are many uh, commentators that equate the four winds that are described as the four horsemen of the first four seals that were broken, and that may be exactly what they are. I don't see that quite the same way. There are other commentators that have read that have have shown that these four corners, these four winds usually referred to the four corners of the earth, a compass, meaning the whole earth, north, south, east, and west, the whole earth, the whole world. 
And we see the same elements of earth, sea, and trees again in chapter 9 when the fifth trumpet is blown. It's kind of a little, little crazy going in the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is broken, you got five, seven trumpets that are there. So there's, it's like Matriska dolls. You're taking the seal off and there's, oh, there's more. And we're going to open those up. But we see again in chapter 9 that these are, these are final judgment activities with, that affect earth, sea, and trees that are different from the first four horsemen. Remember, think of that wheel, the four spokes that's rolling through history. Every, every generation is experiencing the deception of the enemy, the war and the calamity that's there, the famine, uh, and then the pestilence, disease, sickness. Those are, are continuing in every age. These angels, I believe, are holding back that final and ultimate judgment that will come as the final seal is opened. And I think this protection is a protection that's happening right now for God's people. It has been happening since Jesus was born, and it will last until he returns for his redeemed and until all his redeemed are accounted for. He says he's not coming back until everybody that he wants gets in. And then we see this glorious image of an angel with a divine seal coming to give and understand for God's people. There's an ultimate protection for God's people. The angel that is to apply the seal comes first from the rising of the sun from the east. And in scripture, we see that this represents the power of God. So it's the power of God that's bringing this seal. And and remember in Exodus, you have the east wind that brings plagues. You have the east wind that separates the Red Sea. Jesus is going to return from the east on that white horse. This is power that's happening. And the seal is to be applied to the servants. The original word there is bond servants. It's those who are its slaves. And in first century culture, Roman culture, uh, the slaves in Rome they had a mark on their foreheads to signify who they were, whose they were. And here we have, and this is as Paul, uh, John's audience is reading this, they're equating, wait, on the forehead, they're understanding this is for identification and ownership. I'm God's, and this divine seal is coming. God seals his people so everybody knows. They're his. God seals us so everybody knows we're his. We are God's people. We are not our own. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know? And Paul's talking about like the everyday life stuff. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We are not our own. We are God's. And there, there is a seal that is on each of us, I believe, right now, that in the heavenlies, they're seeing that. I don't know what it is design-wise. I, I don't think this is a literal mark that is to go on every believer's forehead. Now, the devil will come, the beast will come and apply, I think, out of mockery. Another seal. Remember, that's the 666. Spoiler alert, I don't think that's a literal mark either. But it is kind of creepy that, remember, the beast puts it on their, their forehead and their right hand. And there's chips that can go now. They're developing. They can go into the, the 
the hands of babies and they're doing it. Hey, you can always know where your baby is. You never lose your child. You never can be kidnapped. It's spooky. It's like, hmm, why? Because the devil's behind the beast. So I don't, I don't think these are literal marks. I don't think people one day will be walking around with 666 on their forehead. So if that kind of crushes what you learned back in the 90s, I apologize. <laughs> but, and the locusts are not big helicopters, Apache helicopters coming in. So, spoiler alert, got to give you a little heads up. <laughs> but with the foreheads, what is this talking about? It's the foreheads of believers. When, when somebody's got something on your forehead, you notice it, don't you? On Ash Wednesday, you notice when somebody's got their, when they've gone to church and they have the ashes on their forehead. We notice things on their forehead. You see Orthodox Jews sometimes that walk around with a box attached to their foreheads from Deuteronomy. You shall put these between the frontlets of your eyes, God tells them. And so Orthodox Jews will have the law, so to speak, on there so they always see it as they're walking. So the forehead represents what we're seeing because we can see something on there. <laughs> on my, right, my forehead, I have these eyebrow hairs that just get really crazy and that like cable iron crazy and they're just, and I see it. Like there is something right there and I got to get it because it's in my vision. So it's in our vision, but also it's what we recognize of others. So I think the forehead represents the behavior, the character of who we are, but what's God doing? He's saying, I'm putting my mark on you, my divine mark. I'm putting my character on you. And we have that promise in Jeremiah 32 when God says he's going to take, oh, Ezekiel, I'm remembering too, he's going to take the heart of stone out and put it in the heart of flesh. But in Jeremiah 32, he's saying, I'm going to give you my law and I'm going to write it upon your hearts. And everywhere you go, nobody's going to have to teach you what to do. You'll know. God gives his character to his people in the new covenant. And he gives that character. So the mark that we are sealed by is our character in Christ. That's why it's important to grow into Christ. Now we have the promise that as we yield ourselves and submit ourselves to the Lord, we will grow in the character of Christ. We will find ourselves becoming more and more like him every day as we continue to look on him and continue to see him. But why do we have this promise? Because ultimately, I believe the seal is the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. The Spirit is inside of us, and the life of Christ that He is molding and fashioning in us, it's showing forth, kind of out of our foreheads, so to speak, that other people see and they know. Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul tells us, In Him you also, Ephesians 1.13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, as, a, as a, a, a mark of your inheritance, you are sealed with the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, we are known as Jesus' disciples. By the character that we grow in every day as we look at Christ, but also display to particular people. You know who? Jesus says to other believers. Remember John 13, 35? By this, they will know you're my disciples. The love you have for one another. Look, God says, I have your seal. People are going to see that because you're going to become more like Christ and you're going to love the people that have called to be next to you, the redeemed. And that love is going to spread out to everybody. And they'll see it as if you're walking around with it on your forehead. 
We are sealed as a spiritual symbol to those who, who carry out God's justice on the earth. So these, these horsemen or the four winds that are coming with destruction, they can't touch us. Remember like the Passover? Because the blood is on the doorpost, the angel of death passes over. They have to pass over us because we're not theirs. We're God's. He has sealed us and he has sealed us with his protection. His his seal protects us from his judgment, from the wrath of the lamb, which is death. An ultimate final separation from him with no means of redemption, no means of mercy to be experienced or felt. Now understand this. He protects us from judgment. He does not protect us from tribulation. He doesn't protect us from, in that way, from suffering and trials. Why? Because remember, we looked at this. He's using our faith that is refined within. Remember, First Peter uh, chapter 1 says that our, our faith is tested and refined like fire. Gold, I'm sorry, gold in a fire. So God is using all the interactions of our lives from, from physical suffering to relational difficulties, all of it. God is using it to refine the gold of our faith, which is imperishable because Jesus bought it for us. And through our faith and growth in faith, the onlooking world says, how do you live like that? And we are then vindicated by our faith. God uses us to shine the light of his glory by our trust in him. That's why when we encounter trials and we, we go through really tragic and horrific things, we can, look, Unbelievers can't do this because they don't have the Spirit of God in them, giving an awareness and and, an intelligence and illumination of what God is doing. Look, when we go through trials and come on the other side, are able to say this, I'm glad that happened because I understand God in a deeper way than I ever did before. Now, when we say we're glad it happened, we're not looking for that to be repeated. Like, God, bring it on again. That was just great. No, 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 no. We don't want to experience, and we don't want anybody else to experience our trials, right? Right? It's, it's merciful. Like, oh, don't experience my. We tell our children, just don't repeat my mistakes. Why? Because we want them to understand. But it's tough. When, even when you watch your children go through hard circumstances, remember, oh, their faith's being refined as gold as well. Because God's giving them their own experiences that they can come on the other side and say, I kind of hated that it happened. But I understand why it happened because I see God in a way that I never saw him before. Oh, that's, ah, something about that, right? Something about that, and that's what, that's what God wants us to understand. And here we come to the 144,000 who are sealed. All right, get some answers, you ready? Who are these people? What does this represent? The biggest question is whether this amount refers to a literal amount of ethnic Jews that will be saved in the final great tribulation? Or is this a representative amount to show forth all of who God has redeemed through all ages and all of time? I think this is a representative number. It could be literal. As we look at this, like, well, I think this, I'm not staking anything on this. I know Jesus saves and he rose from the dead and that seals my salvation. Praise God. There's no lines in the sand that are being drawn. I do see this uh, and there's some clues that I think show this. Uh, The first one would be that the great tribulation that's referred to in, in verse 14 when the elder says these are those who come out of the great tribulation. 
I don't think that refers to the last tribulation. I think that word great deals more with longevity of time rather than intensity. Does that make sense? So it's the great tribulation, the great as in all of it. These are the ones that God has been drawing out, redeeming and saving through all of time. Also, we see that John heard the 144,000. How do you hear a number? But he hears it, and then he sees a great multitude. Now, all through Revelation, these are very critical things to pick up on because he hears something and he sees something all the time. And that's why I say I believe he heard of the great multitude that then is in verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. I think John sees what he hears. Now, why is it this way? The order of the tribes is very different from any Old Testament record we have of the tribes. Now, there are differing accounts in the Old Testament, but this is completely new. Dan is absent. The tribe of Dan, not there. Tribe of Ephraim, not there. Now, this could be just as a result of judgment, I believe it is, that God is saying, I'm removing you because Dan and Ephraim were the, they populated the northern kingdom kings the most. And the northern kingdom, remember, after Solomon, Solomon's got as many wives, and God says, look, I'm going to take the, the kingdom away from you, but I'm going to preserve Judah. I'm going to preserve them because I made my promise to David. So all the northern, it became the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, idolatrous king after idolatrous king. There was one northern king, Jehu, who had some means of wanting to live for God, but yet... The Bible tells us he didn't, remove, he didn't remove the high places. He didn't remove all of the idolatry that the northern kingdom became known as. And in prophecies in the Old Testament, when they prophesied, when the prophets prophesied judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel, they prophesied it to Ephraim. God is going to do this to Ephraim. So it could be God saying, I'm, I'm removing idolatry from my people. But then we have uh, Judah is now first. Remember, Reuben is the firstborn of Israel. Of Jacob, but remember Reuben. Uh, Reuben sins, and it was prophesied that he would do that. But Judah, because Jesus comes from Judah, gets elevated to the the top. So we just have this concept that God is saying, "I'm ordering my people with Jesus first, which is a different type. It's not a birth order thing. That's why when God tells, when Jesus tells the the Pharisees in John chapter eight, "Look, you think you're the father." Of, of your heavenly father, but you're not. You're of your father, the devil. They were, they were anticipating a bloodline security for God's provision and protection and purification for them. He says, you got it wrong. It's by faith, and by faith, Jesus starts it off. And now, look, Joseph is back in this. I'm sorry if I'm getting in the weeds, but hang with me. Joseph is back in this. Remember when, when God, Jacob made his promise to his 12 sons, he said, I'm going to not... I'm, Joseph, I'm going to take both of your sons and they're going to become my sons. So Manasseh and Ephraim became Jacob's sons. What's missing in all of the Old Testament lineage, uh, lineage um, of the 12 tribes is Levi. Remember, Levi was the priestly tribe. They cared for the tabernacle and eventually the temple. They didn't have any land given to them when the conquest, when Joshua brought everybody into the promised land, because they were to be everywhere, but also they were to be central to God's priests. But Levi shows up in this. 
Now, what I think is also fascinating is that Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, they were the sons of the concubines. And they've been elevated. I think what God is showing, see, I love how God in very unique ways just says, you know, when everybody thinks they're washed out and they're worthless, I give them worth. That's what the gospel does. It's not because we have bloodlines. It's not because we're smart enough. It's not because we have enough strength. It's because God who has mercy. What I think these 12 tribes and the 12,000 from each tribe, I think they represent the church in its capacity and its makeup. Because God is describing who he brings together as his church. He's describing those who come to him by faith. He's describing those who everybody else says is worthless and out. He's describing his church and saying, come to me. Now, I think one day in heaven we'll figure out what that means. But that's what I think these point to. Now, I put a weird equation in your notes. It's got a lot of parentheses. But check this out. I think this combination thing that's happening... This 12 by 12, remember we looked at the 12, uh, there are 24 elders around the throne, 12 and 12, 12 representing the original 12 tribes of Israel, God's coven people in the Old Testament, and the 12 apostles. Those, so it's 12 that have come before Christ, it's 12 that are after Christ, and that's what's being put together. So it's all those who come to Christ in both covenants. Remember, in the old covenant, you, people were saved by faith. They were praying then trusting that a Messiah would come and deal the final payment and death blow to their sins and the wrath that God was storing up. Now we on this side of Jesus look back to him. They're looking forward in faith. We're looking back in faith. Does that make sense? So God is saying now, I'm bringing all this together. And in Hebrew culture, to multiply something by 10 meant it was done, complete. So look what he does. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. You multiply those, you get 144 times 10. 1440, completeness. And then God blows their minds and says, now multiply that by 100. 10 completenesses. So what this is to represent is in, in Hebrew thought, an astronomical number. That's why in verse 9 he says, can't even count them. Can't even count them. It's so Many. It's huge. Now, that means this. This great multitude in verse 9, I think he sees what he heard of the 144,000, a number beyond compare. Now, when I, I was convicted this week in looking at this because in my, in thinking of Matthew chapter 7 and his sermon, of the, uh, on the mount. Uh, and when Jesus says the, the path is wide that leads to destruction and the, gate, the path that leads to eternal life is narrow and few are, many are those who find the wide path, few are those who find the small path. God blew my mind because in my mind I limited God who he really could save because I'm thinking, man, there's just more go that way. Few find it. What John sees is there a lot in that few. God's mercy is all over the place. God saves and he loves to save people. And we are grateful if we've experienced salvation. We, we cherish that. But listen, church, he's still saving people. 
He's still saving them. And so the people that you have prayed for, maybe for 30 years, keep praying. Because God loves saving people. Look, the gate might be narrow, but it's full. It's packed. There's a line. There's a line waiting to get through it. And we see the, uh, verses 9 through 14 is this, the lamb purifies because we see the white robes again. In, in this purification, we see uh, th- this, I think is a reference to Zechariah 3, 9. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Pointing, I believe, to what Jesus would do when he died for our sins and he justified us. Helpful definition of of justification that I've used many, many years by Wayne Grudem in his textbook, Systematic Theology. He says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and, two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So think about it this way. When God sees us, He sees us in white robes. And what we get in heaven with those white robes is just the final uh, final proclamation of what we've already been walking in. When he sees us, he sees us pure. As if we have never, ever sinned. It's hard to look at ourselves or anybody else that way, huh? But he does. He looks at us as if we have never sinned. And this, the Christ's righteousness belonging to us is the language of being clothed with his righteousness. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. In the New Testament, we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What power in that? Because listen, when sanctification becoming like Christ more and more in our daily lives, sanctification journey is a roller coaster, isn't it? It's got peaks and valleys. And when we're on the peak, we think, this is great. Wow, I'm really like Jesus. Now, Now I'm not because I just said I'm like Jesus too much. It's, now I need to be humbled and with varying degrees of sanctification. Listen, there's one justification. There are no degrees. We're not more or less justified. If we have trusted Christ for salvation and he put his spirit in us, he sees us as righteous. He sees us as Jesus. And we see palm branches that they have. Uh, these were the big ones. You know, growing up in church, they gave the little palm branch, like from the sago palm. And I always thought, is that really what they put on the road for Jesus? Because that hurts every time I touch the edge of it. And then I saw, oh, there's big palm trees and branches with these big old things. You can wave them and cool off people and stuff. That's, I think, the big ones. That's what they used in the Feast of Booths, the, uh, the festival of tabernacles that we see in the Old Testament, where you, and even in the New that Jesus went to. They would, they would make roofs out of the palm branches. And that festival was a celebration and a recognition of all that God did to protect his people in the wilderness journey before they entered the promised land in Joshua. So they're, they're pulling out in heaven, they're pulling out, we're, we're going to pull out these branches and we're going to praise God for the protection that he was on us and the purification that we are in 
his presence. Now, during the festival, they protected themselves from the sun so they could enjoy God's presence and remember his protection in the wilderness. We, we have these palm branches, not, they're not shielding us from God, they're shielding us from death. And then again, yet again, worship breaks out in heaven. I love how there's an inbreaking of worship constantly in heaven because God is worthy of our praise. And our praise completes the experience of his presence. We rehearse his grace. We rehearse his power. And when we do that, it comforts us. And we, we shouldn't tire of it. Yeah, there are, I have my list of irritating worship songs. I do. Because I'm not, I'm not fully sanctified. I'm not in heaven with a purified mind that I can, a renewed mind, that I can finally look at that song and say, okay, it does praise Jesus. It just lives on my ever-loving nerve and stomps on it. But what is, what is this worship? It's worship for who, God, uh, for who God is. And look, they feel the avalanche of the, uh, verse 12, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might. Feel the avalanche, the rolling, the, the, the waterfall of these characteristics being put on God because they're His eternally. And we love praising Him for it. You know what I saw? It says, Look, be to our God, be to our God forever and ever. Thanksgiving be to our God forever and ever. That's what stuck out. I think we just need to do a better job of recognizing that God, God's thankful. It's his. He has thanksgiving and he wants us to share in his thanksgiving. I've always thought of thanksgiving something I got to give God. No, he is thanksgiving. Cool little thought. I'm still fleshing that out. Now, there's worship for who God is. There's worship God for what he's done. He has redeemed from his own the great... from. From the great tribulation. And this is the length of time all, in all generations. He's collecting and bringing his people in. Then there's a worship of God for Jesus' sacrifice. Washed by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb saves from the wrath of the Lamb. And then in verse 15, and we have this in, in poetry. So this is a song most probably as well. Another song that, that everybody's singing. Maybe the angels are singing. Maybe the redeemed. Maybe everybody's in on it. But within the song of the, of the redeemed is thankfulness for what God is and will always be to his people. The first thing is shelter. They are before God's throne. So he is everything. They are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. That's part of the authority thing that I think we're going to have in heaven as co-heirs and, and co-regents with Jesus. Because God, I think, is he's bringing everybody, what Adam and Eve had in, in their fellowship and their being in God's presence in the Garden of Eden, uh, was priestly. And then you have the Levites that were the priests and they were the ones, they were the mediators between God and sinful man and doing the, the work of sacrifices. Jesus is the ultimate priest. And then we have, we are now in the, Old, in the New Testament, we show, seeing that, that we are now a, a royal priesthood. Every believer is a priest. So every believer is one in God's presence. We don't do the mediating anymore. Well, 
Sort of. I think prayer kind of falls in that category. When we're praying for God's power to show up in somebody's life, I think that's a, a mediation between us and, and somebody who's lost or somebody who's hurting or just sick, something. But, but it's a different type of mediation. It's not a sacrificial mediation where people need to be bro- two things broken come back together. Jesus has done that. But we, we have priestly authority. We have priestly roles. That's our job. We're going to be, there's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new Jerusalem. We see it in chapter 21, 22, we see a new Jerusalem come out. And whether that's a literal or, or figurative, I don't know. But what we, ha- what we do know is that we work there. We have jobs and we have authority. And there's something that God wants to get done that he wants his people, his redeemed, to participate with. But he's this shelter, priests who serve in his presence and... Protect from the heat. Look at verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The, sh- the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. It could be a physical heat, but I think it's just trials. He's promising us that all the trials, they'll go away. Oh, Lord, haste the day. When my faith shall be sight. So he's a shelter. He's also a shepherd. He's protecting from enemies. Maybe that the sun and the heat are, are enemies that want to come against us. But look what he does for the land. One, he, he's a shepherd in the hunger leaving, the thirst leaving. Why? Because he's bringing us to springs of living water. There's no hunger, no thirst. I think we get to eat in heaven because Jesus with a renewed, uh, resurrected body was eating fish. I, but it's not a sustenance. It's not, I need to eat or I'm going to die. I'm so, we will never say, I'm so hungry I could die. That's not going to happen. There's no death there. But we eat out of enjoyment. And, and we will finally be able to welcome all of humanity into the great taste that we enjoy all the time here in South Louisiana. Because you go other places and it's like eating paste. No taste, no texture. We're blessed. We're blessed. Because our, 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 our taste buds rejoice every day, don't they? I can't wait to go home and eat the jambalaya that my wife fixed yesterday that I had for dinner because it was really good. Now look at this comfort of comforts. Oh, he will wipe every tear from our eyes every tear of regret every tear of pain every tear of emotional toil every tear that when we just didn't know what else to do every tear that happens when we don't know why we're crying every tear I had a lot of daughters in my house. There was a lot of crying. And why are you crying? I have no idea. I'm just crying. Jesus will wipe away those two. Oh, what a comfort. What a comfort. This is, it's a shot in the arm. It's, a, it's like, let's keep going. Let's keep being his disciples. Let's keep loving him with everything we are. Because listen, the world is looking for a heaven without a lamb. The world's looking to, we need to end hunger. We need to get everybody fresh water. We need to make sure nobody's suffering or in pain. 
But the culture and the world seek to do that without Jesus along. And it'll never, ever satisfy. What we have is a seal, the sealing of the Spirit. So we can bring cold water to the thirsty, the living waters that never run dry. But let's taste of it of ourselves. Now, are you comforted? Please? Yes? All right, good. <laughs> let's pray. Lord, what a glorious thing it is. What a glorious experience it is to be in your presence. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you gave us your spirit as our comforter. The one who is always with us. The one who will always make us feel your presence even in the moments where we've, either we feel like we don't deserve it or we've lost it or we just can't find it. Your spirit is with us. I pray, Lord, that, that as we continue to look at you, we continue to live for you. We continue to be molded in the image of your son. And God, would you please use us personally as well as this church to, to, to help bring in that multitude? That they would see the glory of Jesus and they would see our love for one another and they would repent and be saved so they will be welcomed in to your, your presence as well. Use us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's remember, we have our marching orders. They haven't changed for over 2,000 years. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.